0: Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online.
1: We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message.
2: The Passover feast was to commemorate the Exodus out of Egypt and its last for seven days. This passage from John tells us that it's the night before the first night of the Passover. It was common to have relatives and friends commune the night before this festival to catch up with those we love, those Jesus love. Jesus knew he would not see the dawn break from this upper room. Jesus knew that in a few hours he would be betrayed because the things had already been put into motion The atoning sacrifice for the salvation of humanity was to come upon the son of man that night. But right now, he shows himself an example to his disciples. At a gathering like this, and just before the meal was served, Jewish, Jewish custom would have a slave or servant of the lowest level wash the feet of all that were reclined at the table. This gathering had no slave nor servant just those called disciples and the one they called rabbi, teacher, Lord, Messiah. The example he enacts is not one of a conquering king, but one of a servant that knows his moment of suffering is to come. To the objection of maybe his most trusted disciple, Jesus demonstrates to all of his disciples that unless you allow me to clean the dirtiest part of you, then you have no standing with me. Let him wash your feet, the dirtiest part of you. Allow yourself to be blessed. Allow the master to serve you. At this time, I invite you to come to the table, dip your finger in the water, make the sign of the cross on your forehead a reminder of being washed clean and united with Christ in our baptism.
1: About three years have passed and Jesus has spent time with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God and doing life with them. They have witnessed the miracles his teachings, and encounters with both outcasts and the religious authorities. Several times he has told him what is to come when he arrives for the last time in Jerusalem. They have been been deaf to the words he speaks of his journey to the cross. In just a few hours, their world will be turned upside down, and their three-year friendship with him will seem to have been a waste. Their plans for greatness in some earthly kingdom will vanish in an instant. Jesus, of course, has a different plan. Jesus wants to spend this last night with his friends to give them a gift. Actually, to pass on to them his estate as he considers them not only friends, but heirs to all that he has. But what does he have? In a few, in a few short hours, he will be stripped of everything including his clothes. He will be beaten, mocked, and placed on a cross. He has no property, no business, no fortune to leave them. What could be of value for them? What could Jesus possibly leave his friends, who in a few hours will also betray him? Often we think that only one betrayed him. True, Judas took the money and he gave the kiss. And Peter denied knowing his teacher and friend. But what about the others? They will scatter as well. Jesus is acutely aware of their condition. But that doesn't deter passing his gift to his heirs. He tells them that he has eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with them before he suffers. And he will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in his kingdom. So he takes bread and he passes it. To his heirs saying take and eat this is my body given for you and then he takes the cup and he passes it to them saying this is my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins Jesus has already forgiven them for their betrayal they simply receive what he gives them how often have you denied Jesus by what you look at by what you read, by what you do, or how you speak. Jesus knows your condition and still bequeaths his estate to you, for you. It's a promise in his body and blood to forgive you. It's a promise that continues until he comes again, and there is no more betraying. Until then, cling to his promise that comes in his body and blood for you.
0: Picture the scene the disciples and Jesus are all reclining at the table and he throws a hand grenade into the middle when he says one of you is going to betray me. And then they start talking about it. Don't you notice that right after the verse that he says one of you is going to betray me there's this conversation about who's the greatest. Can't you just hear it? it wouldn't be me. Is it you? Is it you? It can't be me. I would never do such a thing. I'm the greatest. And we cluck our tongues. Silly disciples. Didn't they know by now? And yet, we do the same, don't we? Arguing over who is the greatest. What makes you great? Why do you think we as humans need to classify, rank, distinguish ourselves from each other? Is it a sense of entitlement? That I'm, I'm, I'm good enough to get something? Is it shame avoidance? Well, if I I'm, if I'm, kind of feel good about myself then I don't have to acknowledge where I fail and where I'm weak and where I'm broken. Is it vanity, pride, fear? To whom do you compare yourself when you need to feel better about yourself or superior? Do you have a Judas that you can lay it off on? At least I'm better than him. Why do you choose the person or the class of people that you choose to compare yourself to to feel a little bit better? What's your basis for comparison? Is it wealth? I've got more, they've got less, they've got more, I've got less. Is it position? I've got a title. Is it importance? Recognition? Sense of righteousness? Busyness? I do so much, I'm so busy. Is it attendance and participation? I check off more boxes than anyone. A humility, a false sense of humility? What's Jesus' measure of greatness? What did he say in the passage? What has he said over and over if you read scripture? The one who is greatest must be the last and the servant of all. What does it look like to be a servant? Does it mean to wait on someone? It might. Does it mean to clean up after someone? Probably. Yield to someone? let someone go first, like the guy on the freeway refraining from giving the universal sign for have a nice day? How about laying down your life? That's what Jesus did. He laid down his life. Now you may never be called upon to be martyred for the faith. We see pictures of men beheaded on the beach in the middle east and we hear of homes being burned in india because it's basically a crime to be a christian and you may never be called upon to make a sacrifice like that but what does jesus ask us to do he asks us for everything he asks us to die to ourselves that is a laying down of our life he asks us to trust him with everything and to love and to do it all out of love. I don't know about you, but that is the hardest thing. We look at other people and and they may be homeless or dirty or strange or sick or scary or dangerous and what does it mean to love them? That's something I'm working on. I'm assuming it's something that you're working on. And it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do whatever we do. When we love, we do. So as you think about that, I'm going to invite you to take a little care kit. That's what we have for experience for this meditation. Take that. Be on the lookout for someone that you can love on in Jesus' name, just a tiny little bit. And practice that. You can, we can all take a little kit and give it to somebody in need. Let's die to ourselves this week.
3: I can just imagine the disciples. What a night. I mean, following this guy has been an adventure to begin with. But they've got foot washing. And then they have this Passover meal that turns into him proclaiming this as his body and his blood. And then this discussion about who's greatest in the... Finally, they say, something we're used to, our custom, to go out to the Mount of Olives, to this place called Gethsemane, which means the olive press. And in the shadows of this olive press, they pray as they always do. But they look over And there's Jesus, and he has gone off in the distance, and now he has not just got down on his knees like he normally does with his hands crossed, but but he's, he's fallen. He's collapsed on the ground, and he's holding on to a trunk of a tree, trying to keep from collapsing into the dirt itself. This is our megastar. This is the guy who can go up in front of anybody we've ever seen and he just dominates them. But here he is, looking crushed. Looking like he he is in such anguish. He is pleading and crying and weeping like he has the weight of the world on him. What about our mega hero? What is happening to him here? He is being confronted by the one and the true and the righteous judgment of the only one who can proclaim such a thing, God himself. You see, as they've been watching him, he's been able to go up to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of the Jews who quote the scriptures great, but they use it and twist it for their own unrighteousness. Use to hold their position in culture. He's got no time for that kind of nonsense. And he dominates them. He goes and he finds demons and drives them right out because a demon cannot stand in front of the righteousness of one like him. Finally, they've seen and heard about him being confronted by Satan himself. The author of all those false promises of, oh, you can be a God yourself. Oh, you can do whatever you want and be free when actually all he plans to do is enslave you to sin. And Jesus drives him off. But here, here in this Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looks to his Father, knowing what's coming, and says, I really, this is a tough one, God. I don't know about this. If you are willing, but if it be your will, because your will is perfect, and it is righteous, and it's what brings peace and comfort to this world, the common grace that we all rely on for a just and beautiful creation. That's what I'm being confronted with. And it is driving me to sweat tears that are almost as if blood, as if I'm almost dying on the spot because I have suddenly confronted me, a vessel who is empty of sin, seeing the weight of sin. What sin does to a body, how it completely crushes it tons and tons. There's nothing to resist the body we have as sinful people. There's nothing we can do but just be crushed and die. And that's what he sees. That's what he struggles under. And he looks over at that olive press, thinks to himself, that press puts so much pressure on those olives that after they are drained of everything useful and alive, all that's left is a dry, dead husk. That's my destiny. Afraid of dying? Afraid of pain? I imagine so. But more than that, he is beginning to feel that cold cloud of sin and iniquity starting to surround him, coming towards him. And that death-filled sin of ours is about to invade his very body and spirit. And just as equally terrible to him as that, As sin closes in, he sees his father starting to separate himself from him. Truly, this man was our sacrificial lamb. Truly, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And remember that weight, that sacrifice that Christ took to the cross and that wonderful, glorious golden exchange where he became our sin and we became his righteousness. If you would like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.